Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Driver hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. On today's show, we have Alexis Shields. The show was recorded on June the 17th and Alexis should have been output as guest number 16. However, because of the level of COVID-19 misinformation and a lack of sufficiently broad scientific and public health discourse surrounding it, I decided to record and put out Kanot Vikovsky as number 16 instead. Now that it's mid-August, I feel that the timing is right to put Alexis out as guest number 18. Alexis Shields, ND, is a licensed naturopathic doctor and an expert in functional medicine. She earned her doctorate at the National University of natural medicine and currently does virtual health consulting with busy professionals and families worldwide. Dr. Shields uses in-depth analysis of blood tests to help her clients find the best diet, fitness and supplements to support their optimal mental and physical performance. She's been featured on popular podcasts and health blogs and has been a consulting physician for Wellness FX and Primal Dogs. She currently lives in Lisbon, Portugal. Hello and welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you for having me. Greatly appreciated. So you're a naturopathic doctor. Correct. And in Europe, uh, I think if you, if you say you're a naturopath, people uh, imagine you're going to bring uh, oils and candles and so <laughs> forth. So maybe you could uh, make, you know, introduce any listeners to what the difference is, at least in American trained naturopathic doctors as opposed to homeopathic and allopathic. Sure. Um, so naturopathic doctors in, um, in Europe and the U.S. are trained very differently. In, in the U.S., we go to uh, medical schools, so four-year medical schools, and do residencies and, and have a very um, similar kind of science evidence-based um, training in the beginning, um, our evidence-based training throughout, but the, the, it's very um, heavy in the sciences in the first two years. And the last two years are more kind of training us to become primary care doctors. So we are, uh, whereas allopathic medicine is kind of the management and treatment of disease and more managing symptoms, naturopathic medicine is more of the treatment of the underlying cause of disease. So why it started in the first place and really specializing in a drug-free natural approach to healing the body through using things like diet and lifestyle modifications and natural medicines, herbs, vitamins, supplements. That's kind of our, um, the area that we specialize in is really restoring optimal function to the body. And then homeopathic medicine or, or homeopathy is just a treatment tool. It's a treatment tool that some allopathic and naturopathic doctors use. Um, it's not necessarily a, a branch of medicine. It's just a, a treatment modality. What's the distinction with functional medicine? You know, all of these wor- words, functional medicine and holistic medicine, naturopathic medicine, they all kind of, um, there's, you know, similarities and things that kind of string them together. Functional medicine also is is kind of the treatment of an underlying cause of disease, specializing more in a drug-free approach when it's appropriate for that particular patient, really dealing with diet and lifestyle modifications. And so there's a lot of crossover between naturopathic and functional medicine. Functional medicine is not necessarily a um, um, you don't have to go to a specific medical school for, to become certified in functional medicine. It's something that you become certified in after you graduate. So there's a lot of 
um, allopathic medical doctors, for example, and osteopaths who are becoming more interested in naturopathic or functional medicine, and they go on to get kind of a separate certification in functional medicine. So a lot of naturopaths already practice functional medicine. That's kind of what we are learning as we're going through medical school is, is, is functional medicine and how to restore function and optimal function to the body. So it's, it's kind of a, another na- name for something that's similar. The, the training and certification is a little bit different. So you are a fan of blood work. I, and why are you a fan of blood work? You know, blood work is really, it's a window into the inner workings of your body. So it allows you to monitor trends over time as you make changes to your health or as time progresses. So just by the nature of, you know, time going on, your health changes, you're getting older, your life situation changes. Um, So, you know, basically there are really effective, easy ways that you can monitor you know, year after year, what's happening with your health, and if it's going up, if it's going down, if it's staying the same, um, as well as monitoring things like your your diet and your fitness routines and lifestyle changes, and you know your supplements that you're taking or herbs, really determining how effective those things are in improving your health over time. So using blood work, you can you can monitor all of that and make better decisions, really make more informed evidence-based decisions and um, and really do that with very little data. A previous guest, Daniel Maggs, a CEO of Baisu, he is bringing to market a home urinalysis device. And he's an advocate that blood is good sometimes and urine is good sometimes. And he makes a case that people often think that blood is a gold standard. I most certainly did. But he makes a case that in a number of cases, urine is superior. Yeah, and, uh, urine can be really effective in in the way that I'm using urine right now is I use it for... Uh, something called a Dutch test, which gives you a lot of different information about your hormones and your stress hormones, your sex hormones like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, um, your your levels of melatonin in your body, which is the sleep hormone. Um, different nutrients can be measured in your urine. You can measure heavy metals, for example. There's a lot of different a lot of different kind of biomarkers that you can get from. From urine, um, I'd be really interested to to see and hear more about what specific type of tests that that he's using. But definitely, there are there are times, for example, when um, re- re- reproductive hormones like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, when I will recommend someone do urine um, over uh, something like blood, for example, which is more the gold standard of tests. But a lot of times, we're able to get more information as to kind of what the body is doing with that hormone, not just the level of it, but how is it breaking down and how is your body producing it in different areas? How is it balancing those the, the breakdown products, for example? Uh, that's more, more of those detailed um, information you can get from urine rather than from blood, which is just kind of a snapshot in time. Urine is also easier to get kind of serial measurements because with blood, it's a, a lot more effort to kind of, you know, get many measurements throughout the day, for example. But with urine, you can do that easily. So there definitely is some some big benefits to using urine for some tests. And you you live in Europe. And do you find it's easy enough to get people to order their own Dutch test in Europe? Uh, There is a company that I just recently discovered, actually. 
I believe they're called Nordic Labs. I'd have to double check on the the name there, but they are taking a lot of the tests that are are a little bit more easier um, to get when people are in the United States and making them available to European markets. And so I'm I'm starting to be able to get access to those and get them to people throughout Europe. Uh, in terms of what you're doing, if I understand correctly, you are sort of like a virtual, can I call it functional medicine doctor? Sure. Yeah. You do virtual consultations. Right. And so you're mainly dealing with people who are, uh, I would imagine, not acutely sick. Yes. Um, when people, so any anytime I'm kind of working with someone, I make sure that they have a, um, you know, a doctor in their immediate area in case they were to get sick, in case they need to get some, you know, um, need to get an exam or anything that needs to be done kind of face to face with that person where they need to go into an office and actually see a doctor or a physician and make sure that they have easy access to that. And then um, I can help people through different acute illnesses when they have them, but I'm not their first point of contact. So I make sure that they have have that in their home area. And then I'm working with people on whether it's chronic diseases or health optimization, or uh, it just kind of depends where the person is at. Is it an art or is it a science? I think, you know, anybody in the medical or health field, there's a little bit of both. It's definitely, it need, the foundation needs to be science. And when you're veering too far from science, I think there's, you're going to run into problems. Um, so I think the foundation very much has to be the science, but there is an art to there's an art to working with people, to helping them to understand their data, to, you know, some, there's a lot of individuality in data. So for example, I have some clients that test their blood every month. And so they're doing a lot of, you know, similar to you, they're doing, they have lots and lots of data. So they're able to track these really long-term trends. And so what we can do is figure out from a small change in their sleep routine or a supplement they're taking, how does that affect their blood work. And there's not a lot of good, you know, double blind placebo studies on, on that kind of thing. We don't really know um, how different changes affect individual people. And so that's, that's where the art comes in is figuring out then as people make changes, and there's not a lot of evidence to say exactly what's going to happen to that person when they do this one thing, a lot of self experimentation. When that happens, you kind of there is an art to it. And you got to figure out, you know, what the best way to interpret that data is based on, you know, using the science that you know and using that, you know, using that art form. With not the last guest, which was Liz Parrish, um, the previous was William Davis. He he wrote Wheat Belly, you know, quite mm -hmm. a, a well-known book, controversial. He, I, I was saying to him, so sorry for listeners uh, hearing me repeat myself again. I, I said to him that, I spend quite large sums on testing. However, they all, I could summarize most of them simply by doing triglycerides divided by HDL. If triglycerides divided by HDL is a good value, everything else pretty much lined up. Hmm. Inflammation, and mm -hmm. cholesterol of all kinds, no damaged lipids, etc. Mm -hmm. So, do you you obviously look at um, ratios, and do you particularly favor triglyceride to HDL ratio? Because often they speak of total cholesterol mm -hmm. um, to triglyceride as a ratio, but I find triglyceride over HDL 
I would say, yeah, I I think that's a really good observation. If I had to pick one ratio, one lipid ratio that I'm using the most often, I think that is most predictive of kind of what's going on. Triglyceride HDL would be a big one. And it's, I think most, when I'm talking about most predictive, I'm talking more in the the realm of cardiovascular disease risk, um, diabetes disease risk. So if we're, we're looking at all those big, you know, the main chronic diseases that are killing, you know, a vast majority of people, especially in the US, um, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and, and diabetes are two things that are huge. And then also, you know, there's a, it's a, definitely considered a chronic, chronic disease to have elevated levels of inflammation. Um, for inflammation can elevate for various, you know, reasons, but definitely for most of the top chronic diseases, inflammation is, is a component of that. And so d- definitely a triglyceride HDL ratio, I would say correlates to kind of those things. So yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. And it was one that would save a lot of money because I think it's only like five euros for both. I mm-hmm. don't even think it's that. Yeah. It's really cheap. Yeah. And that's the thing I like about blood work. There's a lot I could say, so I'll, I'll keep this short. I categorically believe that the full power of blood work has not been realized. The good thing about blood work is it goes back decades. We've got lots of research. Uh, we've got lots of historical data. It's super cheap. And I think going forward, we'll be able to leverage AI more and more on blood work and get a lot more from it so you don't need fancy tests. Yeah, okay. So as I was saying, the triglyceride over HDL is good. And when people show me one and it's like, you know, it's like one and a half to two resultant value, I'm thinking, no, you are definitely stopping in the bakers on the way to work. Mm-hmm. You can almost guarantee how many, how much sure. processed carbohydrates you're eating or lack right. of sweating and movement Absolutely. going on. The, but there's so many domains I I haven't been able to look at simply because it's, it's not my... Uh, full-time job uh for example thyroid is an area i'd like to to look at so i don't know if you do thyroid if you ask people go for thyroid but i know um earlier this year i had i just didn't feel i was handling stress well um and so you know i'd done a a normal thyroid panel but this time i asked for reverse t3 Mm -hmm. and reverse t3 yeah it was well outside upper bounds of lab range. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means, but I'll come to discover that in time. Maybe you have a comment on on that now. Yeah. So with thyroid testing, oftentimes someone will come. They want me to look at the thyroid testing they've had had done in the past, and it's very incomplete. And so we don't really know what's going on with their thyroid. For example, if just a TSH was tested. Um, your thyroid is a whole cascade of hormones. It starts with your brain telling your thyroid what to make. Thyroid is a butterfly-shaped um, organ that's in your neck. Um, it's a, a gland that secretes hormones that then affect every cell in your body. And so basically, you want to you test your thyroid at different points. You want to know, is the brain telling the thyroid to do what it needs to do? Is the thyroid then able to produce what, it's need, what it needs to produce? And then do those hormones... Um, get activated in a way that they can adequately um, and 
you know, optimally affect all of the cells in your body. Your thyroid's kind of like the engine of your body. And so you have to look at all the different pieces of that engine to figure out, are they all optimal? And if they're not, where is the kind of missing link? Where is the problem occurring? Because it's not always just one, it's not always just a thyroid issue. It could be an issue of not having enough minerals to convert the um, free T free T four to free T three, for example. Free T three is is a test that not oftentimes is added to a full complete thyroid panel, and I think it's really important because it's one of the end of the line hormones that does a lot of uh, biological work on on the cells in your body. So, having, for example, low iodine, low selenium, magnesium, zinc having low mineral status in general or intaking not enough minerals or eating food that doesn't have, you know, it's not grown in soil that's rich in minerals that can make it so that you are unable to convert to the active, the most active form anyway of thyroid. And it can make you have all the same symptoms of hypothyroidism, but have a normal appearing thyroid test. Um, if only TSH was tested or free T4, for example, reverse. Yeah, so I I test TSH, T free T4, free, free T3, mm-hmm. and consistently, for your interest, for years, I mean, s- since I've been testing and I test frequently, mm-hmm. uh, my free T4 is always just an edge of maximum. TSH, fine. T3, fine, or, you know, kind of medium. But the T4 is always on the upper bound consistently. And I never tested the uh, reverse T3 before. And as I say, it's off the lab range on the high end. Yeah, so reverse T3, I often, so that is also, so there's like the core test, the TSH, free T3, free T4. And then there's some other additional tests that I think are really helpful, especially when you're assessing someone's thyroid for the first time, or they're having problems that we think might be a thyroid issue. One of them is reverse T3. Reverse T3, you can kind of think of it as, um, kind of as the stop sign that stops some of the active hormones. So it might look like you have enough active hormone, but if your reverse T3 is really high, then it's blocking that hormone from being able to do the work on the body that it needs to do. So if you have a lot of reverse T3, usually to me what that means is that you could be having a lot of hypothyroidism symptoms or symptoms of hypothyroidism, um, but have normal appearing test. And the problem isn't minerals, it's not... um, you know, it's not actual thyroid producing the hormone. It's not your brain telling the thyroid what to do. The problem is more of a stress issue and a stress management issue. So that's where you might look at your ability to handle and deal with stress, for example, um, which so there's some other tests and basic blood work that can kind of indicate that. So it, it kind of points you towards an area that could be a problem that's in, in the downstream affecting your thyroid function. Because if your body is under a lot of stress, then your thyroid will downregulate itself so that your body doesn't operate at a really high capacity. It's trying to slow you down a little bit. You can kind of you kind of imagine it in that way. Your body's under a lot of stress. You need to it needs to downregulate a little bit to kind of preserve energy and 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 the function of um, the more critical organs in the body. The other kind of couple tests that I think are important for people to do once a year, for example, are two antibodies that are related to Hashimoto's disease, which causes hypothyroidism. So. Hashimoto's is is a uh, autoimmune disease that would, you know, for example, if someone has thyroid issues that look like hypothyroidism, the next thing you want to know is, is it caused by an autoimmune disease or is it not caused by an autoimmune disease? Because the treatments are a little bit different from a functional medicine standpoint. 
from a functional medicine standpoint, if you have elevated thyroid antibodies like thyroid peroxidase antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies, that would indicate that there's an immune system component to the cause of the thyroid. And because, you know, in naturopathic medicine, we're looking for the underlying cause of disease, it's really important to know if there's an autoimmune component going on, because there's different natural treatments, different diet decisions, different fitness decisions, lifestyle decisions that you would make if you have an underlying autoimmune disease. Um, even if the conventional treatment for it doesn't really change. For example, if you have Hashimoto's versus just hypothyroidism that isn't autoimmune related, the medication you know, protocol would be exactly the same. But from a, a functional medicine standpoint, it's really important information. Did those tests and indicated it wasn't autoimmune? So I'm quite satisfied it was it, <laughs> it was stress. By the way, I found ashwagandha uh, mm. helped very helpful. Yeah, that and, could be really and uh, Rosalia Rodalia, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah, very very ashwagandha is super powerful herb. It's something that helps. The thing that I really like about ashwagandha is that it is adaptogenic, meaning that it helps. You know, herbs have different components because they are plants. They, have, they work different than drugs. They don't just have one singular action that have been isolated in a lab. Herbs, because they are whole plants, they some of them especially tend to modulate things when they're overactive and modulate them when they're underactive. And so ashwagandha can do this as well as there's a lot of other herbs that do this as well. But it helps to helps your body to achieve optimal and normal function. Um, by up-regulating or down-regulating things when it needs to, by helping your body to kind of create that homeostasis or that balance. Yeah, do you think you maintain homeostasis better when you give yourself hermetic challenges? Because it's my belief that you do maintain a stronger homeostasis when you give yourself a hermetic hermetic challenges. Sure. You know, when you, okay, so you do, you do uh, follow, follow that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just, I don't know, I just, it, it seems to be the case. I notice when I look at my tests, um, the, another consistent pattern I, I notice is the lymphocytes are always low and the neutrophils are always high. Mm -hmm. um, and MCH, you know, the mean uh, corpsula, uh, hemoglobin is always high. But yeah. the main pattern is the lymphocytes are always low, the neutrophils are always high, and it's been like that five years. So it's, it's really hard to say because um, basically that's a pattern that you want to identify. And you, what we need to know is, is that a pattern that's normal for you? So it kind of depends on how high and how low. Because within a certain margin of error, I do see that people have kind of outside of what the optimal reference range is for that particular lab test. It might be it's just off of the it. edge at each end. So just lymphocytes the are just off the edge on the left and the neutrophils are always just off the edge. Yeah, the right. so, yeah so what you might be seeing there is kind of an individual um kind of reference range for you that's optimal for you. And so if it's not, you know, way outside of the range, it could be that your your levels are normal within that range and there's not necessarily a problem to be investigated, you know, when that when, when you're seeing that. So it's it's really hard to say. You also have to kind of look at all the other blood tests surrounding that and see if there could be something that could be explaining, you know, that that um that difference in in the reference range compared to your level. Um, I use this tool called the Blood Smart. Um, it's a it's a 
BloodSmart prediction tool, health prediction tool. So it basically is a machine learning algorithm that has a database of, you know, tons of people. Basically, you take your blood work, compare it to this huge database of people, and it basically helps to pull out um, patterns uh, that are similar in your blood work to other people and make predictions based on those. And so that would be an interesting thing to run your data on because it could maybe pull out some patterns of, of underlying issues that we hadn't really thought of, whether it's a, a, um, a nutrient issue or a hormone issue or heavy metal issue or an issue with toxicity in general or the way that your you know, organ systems function that help with detoxification like your liver and your kidneys. Um, those kind of tools, are, I think, are using machine learning algorithms in that sense are really helpful because we might be looking at that and say, you know, it's it, it, we might be just seeing an individual pattern for you. But then when we run it through the machine learning algorithm, when, you know, we're comparing your data to, um, you know, 100,000 people, for example, it might be able to pull out some things that we that we can't necessarily know just looking at, at blood work patterns. So You mean blood smart AI? Yes. It used to be called blood Yeah, so yeah. Chris Kelly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had Dr. Uh, Tommy Wood on the show yep. um, a long time ago. Yeah. And I, I love that tool. And so I take it you offer that to clients also because it's yeah. quite expensive if you're not a practitioner. Right. Uh, so that's that's included in part of my, my first consult with somebody when I – Oh, that's and, really nice. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's really nice to add that on. Super useful. It's really useful. And I think it also gives you your five-year wellness score, which is a, a tool that not, that BloodSmart didn't develop, but it's it's from a highly adapted tool in scientific research that kind of gives you a, a score on a, on a level from zero to 100. And it gives you kind of a, a number or numerical value that you can really – um, use to track, you know, over time, how is your overall health progressing in a, in a numerical value. So that's really helpful. It also gives you kind of a, a biological age. So by looking at your blood work it, without, without knowing your, your age, it actually makes a prediction of what it thinks your age is, um, which is also a really useful tool. Yeah, so uh, I find I've ran the report. Again, I spent money I shouldn't have spent uh, <laughs> testing myself and other people and running reports. It sounds kind of silly when I don't have my own practice and you're just paying for tests for those around you and, and yourself. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, it's you know, I do have a backstory on it I won't go into, but basically I just fell in love with uh, playing with health data. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I found that tool to be very good. And I remember it said uh, most likely have um, heavy metals and mm -hmm. uh, mercury in particular. And I used to have amalgams for. Oh, interesting. And then I got them removed instantly uh, in ways I wouldn't do nowadays mm -hmm. um, by a by a uh, an ordinary dentist, shall we say, who didn't have any. Uh, care about gases and so on. Sure. But I also had them in for um, uh, a couple decades. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did blood testing for mercury. And it, I, I was stupid. I didn't realize, you know, it's only going to show acute exposure in blood before it settles in soft tissue. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure how to um, check for in soft tissue, like brain. I'm not sure you can. I don't know. And then when it came to detox, there were so many protocols and possible sh uh, ways to ch chelate it that um, I just didn't. I just started going to infrared a lot um, in mm -hmm. the week. Mm -hmm. And then now with corona, um, nowhere is open. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that was top of the list. And I also predicted I had had cryptosporidii um, at some point, and that's true. Fifteen years ago, I, I did uh, catch that from a swimming pool. Mm. Um, but it was amazing how a machine learning platform detected that I had been uh, I'd had a cryptosporidii infection. Interesting. So yeah. fascinating stuff. Um, but that if you go to bloodsmart.ai now, you've only got like a subscribe. There's no graphics or anything. So I'm not sure how it's getting marketed at, at the moment. You know, um, I think they're targeting that information is, is an, an incredible tool. Um, but it really is something that, that a professional should guide you through that data because the interpretations that you make on that data, um, it does take some, um, it, you know, it takes training in how to look at blood work and identify disease and take that person's blood work and, and make it real by knowing the person's health history and diet and lifestyle and, and um, so many other factors kind of inform that information that I think it's, it's better suited to have that information and have a professional um have a physician, have someone that's really trained in looking at blood work from from the optimal health um, perspective and having them interpret that data for you. So I think it's an incredible tool, but it really, you know, is exponentially more useful when you can have someone accurately go through the information and explain what it means. And so I think a lot of um, who that tool is for is like health professionals. So I wish to make it clear that you do virtual, uh, what I, I call functional medicine mm -hmm. uh, consulting, um, and you typically take on, I guess, entrepreneurs, executives. Yeah, as a presumption. Typically, yeah, I'm, I'm usually working with you know like a busy professional who really wants to and improve and optimize their health using their basic blood work data or just their health data, their biomarkers in general, and to use that data to make more informed decisions about their health choices, such as diet and fitness routines, supplements and the like. So um, yeah, I'm doing virtual consulting uh, with, with that crowd and, and others as well. I kind of have a, a really um, varied client base. They're all across the world. So really, I mean, I think, Actually, I forget what my my country count is up to now, but I see people from all over, which is great because it really is a challenge for me to figure out how do I support someone who is from all over the world and has totally different resources available to them. And so it's really helped me to create kind of a, um, you know, labs that people are using all over the world, resources, places to get supplements, places to get good quality food and and you know, finding what those resources are across the globe. So for the States, are you asking people as part of your onboarding to go to Quest or LabCorp and take biomarkers? Yeah. yeah so in general, the, the cheapest way to do, to, to pay for kind of a really comprehensive blood work panel in the U S is to go, is to have me order it through a lab wholesaler that goes through LabCorp. So typically I'm sending people who are working with me who have access to LabCorp to LabCorp to get their blood tests done and then the results come directly to me. That makes it the most inexpensive. There's also 
um, different resources online where you can order your own blood work. It's a little bit more expensive, but still really affordable for basic testing um, that where you can use lab or quest. And then also you can take the, the list. I've had a lot of clients who just take the list of blood work to their local you know, physician and have them do as much of it as they're able to do and, and maybe even use insurance. And so it just depends on depends on what the person's situation is. And I would say you could get the easiest and, you know, the easiest way to do it is just to have me order it for you, go to LabCorp, get it done. And it's, it's pretty affordable. Do you have clients in, in Portugal? I have a few. Um, but I, most of my clients in, in Europe are in Italy and Spain, um, a few in France and, um, a majority of them in the UK. So, um, I'm having people go to, I have a list of labs, basically, depending on where you live. If you're in or near kind of a major city within Europe, I generally have a, a good lab to send people to. And then I have a few, there's like in the UK, for example, there's a particular lab, lab company that is throughout all of UK. And so I'll have them, you know, go to one of those, basically. It hasn't really been an issue for people to actually find blood testing. The only place I have maybe a few issues is in Australia, where there's not a lot of direct to consumer blood testing, but everywhere else there pretty much is. And so to mention a couple of tests here. So it seems nowadays iron is frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it seems, uh, let's just say it's uh, not conducive to longevity, particularly in, in men. So when it comes to iron testing, how can you distinguish between iron and ferritin? So iron is basically iron is very influenced by what you just ate. So serum iron, if you're looking at serum iron in the blood, um, you know, there are some tests, for example, that are highly influenced by what you just ate and some that are more long-term markers. Serum iron is more of a short-term marker. So it is influenced by how much iron you've had in your recent meals. Uh, ferritin is more of a measurement of iron storage. So how much iron you have stored up in your body for future use. You can kind of think of serum iron as a snapshot in, in time of what your iron status is at that moment. Ferritin is how much iron is stored up in your body for future use of making red blood cells, for example. The reason why iron gets a bad rap is you know, iron is very necessary for men and women in certain amounts to create healthy red blood cells, which help to deliver oxygen throughout your body and your brain. So extremely essential nutrient. If you have low iron, you're going to be in lots of trouble in terms of health related issues, especially energy and brain function and athletic performance. And there's a huge list. When iron is too high, it's extremely inflammatory. And for women, because of, of monthly menstrual cycles, we have a, you know, a method for getting rid of iron that is maybe too hot at too high of a level that would otherwise cause inflammation. For men, you don't have that same monthly cycle where you get rid of red blood cells. And so it's more common, although it can happen in women too, but it's more common for iron to build up into really high dangerous levels in men because at a certain point that, that iron can build up and it can kind of, um, you can think of it almost in, you know, uh, rust, um, rust uh, that grows on a nail, for example, or rust, it basically causes rusting of your pipes, or it can cause damage in your blood vessels, creates high levels of inflammation, like C-reactive protein, 
um, and it is uh, just highly inflammatory, can lead to liver disease, for example. So do you think it's a great idea adding iron shavings to breakfast cereals to fortify them? You know, a lot of those breakfast cereals I wouldn't recommend people eat anyway, but I don't necessarily think it's a great idea. Depends on where those cereals are being eaten. If it's in a, you know, an area of the world where uh, the iron levels are, are extremely low due to malnutrition, and that breakfast cereal is something that's used to help bring up iron, then that's a totally different situation. But in someone who has access to you know, good quality food and has access to food that are high in iron, like animal proteins, for example, um, it's not a good idea to eat a lot of fortified foods with iron because that can contribute to creating more inflammation and building up your iron levels, especially in men. When it comes, the big issue we will need to bring up is cholesterol, mm-hmm. since it's a, a top of most people's minds when it comes to health testing. My own is uh, sort of the order in US units. Uh, let's look here, it's 260. Okay. So say about 6.9 in the rest of the world type units. That's total. Um, uh, sorry, that's LDL. Okay, And I, I'm not overly concerned because I've done high resolution analysis. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I do. I've done lipoprint. I know people do NMR. I think I heard you somewhere mention uh, VAP by Athro Tech mm-hmm. Incorporated, which is a high resolution. So I had mine looked at many times and it was pattern A. You know, it didn't have small dense LDL. But if I changed and started eating breads and processed food, it did change to pattern B. So as part of your onboarding, you don't normally do that high resolution because of the expense, I would presume. Correct. I don't. Um, If someone comes to me and they already have it, that's great. I don't necessarily even um, recommend it for everyone. It kind of depends on what their what their cholesterol picture is telling me, what their inflammation markers look like, what their blood sugar markers look like. And if there's kind of questions that I have that I can't answer with that basic data that's really inexpensive, then I might take it one step further and, and recommend it for that subsect of people. But but yeah, I mean, it can be really helpful just to see what pattern you have. Um, and if that pattern is, is, you know, more inflammatory, then we would want to be more aggressive in what we were doing to lower those levels if it was needed more or less aggressive. And so it can it can definitely inform the picture, but I think there's a lot of information that you can get before having to do the specialized tests. I, would, I presume you don't consider LDL a predictor in itself of, of heart disease. You know, the research doesn't really support total cholesterol by itself or LDL by itself as really predicting much of anything very consistently. And so you really have to look, cholesterol is, is you know, Cholesterol is a necessary and crucial, crucial thing to have in your body to create hormones and repair cells and and um, to build, you know, all the cells of your body. It's it's crucial to have an adequate level of cholesterol, just like it is crucial to have an adequate level of iron. But when the levels become too high, that's when we're wondering, you know, are you at increased risk for atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease, um, stroke? And the only way to really know those things is to look at the whole picture. One marker isn't really going to tell you anything because sometimes that could completely steer you wrong just looking at, you know, a high LDL, for example, or even just a high total cholesterol. Um, You really have to look at the ratios. You have to look at, it's really nice to have two markers that are not just um, calculations. They're actually 
actual protein measurements, the apolipoprotein B and LPA. Um, those are two that are really nice to have because they translate more to, to cardiovascular risk just looking at them by themselves than looking at some of the, the cholesterol markers. LPA is also highly genetically driven, so that can give you an idea about your kind of genetics of the picture, which is also something you have to consider when looking at total cardiovascular risk. So it's really a, um, you know, that's the, I would say the dangers of people testing and looking at one measurement and making an assumption about what that means about their health that, or just Googling, for example, let's say you, you do a test on yourself because you want to be proactive. You want to figure out what your cholesterol and your cardiovascular risk is. Maybe you have family history of cardiovascular disease and it comes back, you have, you have an LDL of 180 or 190. So you Google that and it tells you, oh, that means, you know, you could have, you could die from a stroke because it's always the worst case scenario when you Google it. That's kind of a scary thing because you're not looking at the whole picture and it might meet, be that when we look at the whole picture of, of what that cholesterol means in context, it's actually a very you know, good cardiovascular risk profile. So it's, it's something that's a little bit more complex that has to be weeded through. Well, I have the belief that it may or may not be supported by data. I'm still mm-hmm. uh, pondering this one. I certainly have collected enough to, correl- to do some correlation, but I am of the belief, we'll call it that, the okay so another fact i've never had a testosterone measurement that was not off the charts high okay i'm 44 years old and i have more than double people who i've went to the lab with in their 20s i don't know if that's a bad thing to be that high but i believe it very much correlates with ldl with a high ldl I believe that the testosterone is higher. I, I you- have, I've actually have seen that pattern, um, especially in the opposite. So when someone has really low cholesterol, oftentimes that really their their testosterone takes a hit. So from you know from looking at that, you can also assume that if their cholesterol was super high, that some people would then use that cholesterol to create extra sex hormones. Um, whether that's genetically driven or just something that's individual to you and based on your lifestyle, if you're someone who does a lot of like heavy lifting and weights and, you know, eats high protein diet and, ha- you know, has adequate levels of sleep and sunshine, those people tend to create more testosterone than the average person. And so if all of those kind of factors, including genetics are, are right, um, then high levels of, of cholesterol in general could then translate to higher sex hormones. I think that um, cholesterol, higher levels of cholesterol are related to antiviral uh, properties, but I'm not, I'm not versed in that in, in the least. There are, there's definitely some research that, um, you know, that it's kind of all across, it's kind of all over the board. Um, but cholesterol definitely impacts your ability to, um, I would say balance your immune system. And so absolutely they're either low or high cholesterol can impact the way that your immune system functions. I've also heard that cholesterol is anti-inflammatory. I'm not quite sure what's meant by that, but I've been told it it's acting in a good way to deflame. I have no idea of the physiology. So 
cholesterol, you can kind of imagine it as the duct tape of the body. It floats around, it repairs damage, it builds cells. Um, so in a sense, it is very anti-inflammatory to a point. Um, for example, HDL cholesterol is a type of cholesterol that helps to move remove cholesterol from, from the extremities or out basically from the liver and bring it back to the liver to be processed and, you know, eliminated by the body. And so HDL cholesterol is, is something that is, we consider it the good cholesterol, although there is good and bad HDL cholesterol, same with LDL. HDL cholesterol can be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. It kind of goes into the pro-inflammatory stages, meaning that it increases inflammation once HDL is 70 and above. It doesn't mean that if you have an HDL that's very high that it's, that it's causing inflammation, but there is what we see in research is there are patterns of people with HDL that HDL cholesterol higher than 70 that can relate to um, inflammation or be a pro-oxidant at too high levels. And so it can elevate in things like autoimmune disease and um, different diseases that are, are from immune system dysregulation. Years ago when I looked at cholesterol, I came to the conclusion that LDL is bad when it's bad, good when it's good. Mm -hmm. HDL is good when it's good, mm -hmm. bad when it's bad. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it's really it doesn't help explain it when people want a much more simplified model. Right. Yeah. You really, you got to look at all the pieces as like cholesterol, especially is one that is, is a puzzle and you have to put all the pieces together and look at them all together and then make an assumption about cardiovascular risk from all the pieces. So when it comes to adrenal testing, I don't think I've done adrenal testing. And because I mentioned, I think I have yeah, what I'll call stress issues. I remember earlier I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, reverse T3. Uh, um, um, then I, I would like to do adrenal testing. And I think that there's talk of, I don't know how it works, but sodium divided by potassium somehow gives some kind of measure of body stress. Yeah, so really a better way to look at it is if your sodium levels are on the low end of normal or low, and if your your potassium levels are on the high end. So when your sodium is really low and your potassium is really high, that pattern is a common pattern that will show up when someone has adrenal dysfunction. And I'm not talking about adrenal disease or any diseases that happen um, when the adrenal tissue is physically diseased. I'm talking more of a dysfunctional issue with the way that your body deals and handles with stress and it produces the stress hormone cortisol. So that is kind of a this is one of those scenarios when, and I know now you were, when you were mentioning the, um, I forget the, the name of the person that's creating the, the, um, use at home. yeah, um, yeah. So this is, and I know now what you were referring to is the different types of testing, but this is one of these, um, scenarios when urine testing is really helpful because you can't really look at the kind of function of the adrenal gland in blood very easily. Um, you're, you're really screening for disease with it, like doing a cortisol test, for example, that can be a little bit of a screening tool, but it's almost never done just one singular cortisol test, um, in conventional medicine, because there's no, it doesn't really tell you much. And sometimes it'll show up a little bit high if someone's under big amounts of, you know, large amounts of stress, but it doesn't really give you that much information. It's much easier to figure out the health of your adrenal gland from a functional medicine perspective, looking at urine 
output of, of some of the adrenal stress hormones and how that changes throughout the day because it should be highest in the morning when you wake up and then it gradually so goes we're down. back to the Dutch test. Exactly. So the Dutch test is super helpful for that. There's other functional labs that do urine testing um, or you can do saliva testing as well with, with adrenal dysfunction um, detecting kind of some you know, causes of or the adrenal cortisol patterns throughout the day. And so one kind of screening tool that I'll use is I'll look to see is the person's sodium on the low end, their blood sodium and their potassium really on the high end, high normal or, or even higher than the lab report range. And if it is, then that and they have symptoms that support and other blood tests that support, you know, stress hormone being kind of dysregulated, then that would you know, make me kind of go down that pathway of do we need to do further testing and look at the actual output um, to see what the adrenals are doing? Or can we treat based on the symptoms because the picture is pretty clear? I think the the pH of blood is more tightly controlled in urine. So urine, uh, uh, how, how could I put it, is better to show um, if you're alkaline or acidic, if I understand correctly. Somewhat, it's uh, urine testing a pH is really tricky because you're correct when you say that you know urine or pH of blood is definitely more tightly regulated, absolutely, because your body really you know wants your your body pH to be in a certain your blood pH to be in a certain level so that um, different biological processes can happen at their optimal in their optimal way. With urine pH, there's a lot of things get, that can throw it off. And so it's depending on the person, how kind of regulated they are when they do the testing and how in general, I don't use a lot of urine pH strips or to really tell you about much because I did actually for a period of time when I first started practicing and getting into a lot of this and testing it out. And I didn't find it to be very consistent. I didn't find it to tell me that much information that I couldn't find from looking at blood work. And so I don't really do it anymore. Not to say that some people don't find benefit from it, um, but I just didn't find a lot of consistency in it, even though you know testing your urine does tell you, um, you do get a pH level for sure. It's just, I don't know that it gives you that much information. I'll jump back a touch when it comes to cholesterol often people think that it's dietary cholesterol that puts up their blood cholesterol so maybe you could just clarify that before i speak about electrolytes and, and blood levels sure so dietary cholesterol only affects your cholesterol output by let's say around 20 percent. it could be a little bit less or a little bit more but the majority of the cholesterol that your body is producing you make your liver actually makes your body makes um, and so what you're looking at in blood cholesterol is the majority of it is what your body is producing, not really what you're eating, which is why some people can, for example, I've had a lot of people experiment in terms of how they eat and how it affects their cholesterol. And I've had people who, um, for example, ate lots and lots of eggs and, you know, eggs contain a lot of dietary cholesterol. It's one of the foods that people avoid when they need to lower their cholesterol or they've been told they need to avoid and I've had people do that and their dietary cholesterol actually goes down. So some people, and this is also very genetically driven for some people, um, their dietary cholesterol will go down, or sorry, their blood cholesterol will go down when their dietary cholesterol goes up. And so what's happening there is your body down regulates the amount it produces because you're eating enough. And so it, usually your dietary cholesterol doesn't affect 
your your body's cholesterol that much unless you're eating massive amounts or you have specific genetic profile that makes you really sensitive to certain types of cholesterol or fats. Sometimes that can influence your cholesterol. But that's really, I would say, more rare. I would say 80% of people generally don't have to worry about the cholesterol that they're eating as long as it's cholesterol from healthy foods like eggs, um, you know, healthy animal proteins in general, that is something that supports healthy cholesterol, not hinders it. And so I went to buy double cream um, the other day and the, I asked for four and the lady there, I'm, I'm not joking, maybe <laughs> it's funny cultural differences <laughs> because I find here where I am at the moment, Slovenia, um, sometimes people refuse to sell you something if they don't think it's appropriate. For example, <laughs> ordering food, if they don't think you should have ketchup on it, they won't actually give you the ketchup <laughs> because they've decided. I don't know. I, I've never managed to get my head around it. So, you know, it's just like this sort of like, I'm the customer. I'm always right. How can you be telling me how to consume <laughs> something and refusing to sell? Um, but often when I go to her, because she has the best sweet cream, mm-hmm. uh, nice local, and uh, but she'll refuse to sell me more than two some days. Because she says she doesn't want me having a heart attack because her <laughs> husband had one. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this, I'll say, myth that cholesterol causes heart attacks. And, yeah, I'm quite sure her her husband has tried to cut cholesterol down but has not paid attention to sugar. And I would certainly believe it's the sugar uh, yeah. items which are the driver of heart disease, not traditional fat and cholesterol. Absolutely. I mean, most of the research that you see when you really look to see what the data supports, just as many people have heart attacks with low cholesterol as have high. And so cholesterol is clearly not, you know, the only thing that we're looking at here. And it's not that it's not important. I think a lot of people hear that and then they think, oh, it's not important at all. It definitely is a piece to the puzzle and different people respond to their diet in different ways. And so that's why it's important for you to figure out kind of what your individual responses are to the diet choices that you make. Um, to know whether it's supporting healthy cholesterol or not supporting healthy cholesterol, or if there's some change that you need to make to continue to support it. But, you know, it's really, it's a tricky thing because a lot of the, um, sorry, I completely forgot my train of thought. (laughs) Cholesterol's uh, a tricky thing. And uh, the lady at the shop had been refusing to sell me uh, too much sweet cream. Oh, right. And actually it, Right. Sorry. Completely forgot my train of thought. You know, really what we're looking at here is people who are eating lots of sugar, not moving, um, you know, lots of processed foods or foods that that are not rich in vitamins and minerals that they need. And it's a lot more of a blood sugar issue than, than anything. When we're looking at someone's cardiovascular risk and we're looking at their inflammation levels, which is highly influenced by body weight, because as you know, for someone who's obese, for example, that that creates um, someone can have high inflammatory markers just from that alone, just from carrying extra body weight, especially in the abdominal region. And blood sugar markers also a big component of calculating risk. Cholesterol also a component, but I think those other two are definitely weighted a little bit stronger when we're looking at cardiovascular risk and stroke. Yeah, I won't. Um guess at the moment as to why we why an industry focuses on them so jumping back to where we were so when it comes to electrolytes and minerals so sodium potassium calcium uh, phosphorus 
these do not relate to our dye either, from what I understand. So if you've got high sodium, it might just be that you're dehydrated. It's not that you've had too much salt. And the same with potassium and calcium. So if you eat more cheese and milk, your calcium blood levels don't typically rise. Somewhat. It's a little bit tricky because this is also a little bit individual in terms of how someone responds when they take, for example, a calcium supplement or they increase their calcium in their diet. Um, calcium and magnesium are two that tend to move a little bit with diet, but sodium, potassium, chloride, bicarb, um, those which are used to calculate something called the anion gap that tells you about, um, which is like a, a calculation of, of pH in the body. That those measurements are tightly regulated because your body really, you know, wants to control the pH of the blood. It wants to be between 7.35 and 7.45. It's a very tight control. And so it will do whatever it needs to do to kind of keep the body within that range. And so dietary sodium maybe can impact it if you're eating tons and tons of sodium, or you've just run a marathon, you're really dehydrated. Or, you know, you've been sweating a ton because you're, you know, been outside and exercising a lot. So those kind of, kind of more severe or those things that, that are a little bit more on the severe side of things can, can affect your, those, you know, electrolyte calculations. But, you know, in, ter in terms of, you know, just your, the average amount of, of calcium that you're getting in your diet affecting your the pH of your body that much in terms of that pH calculation, it doesn't really affect it that much. Um, but I have seen that when someone's really deficient in electrolytes, they're not eating enough minerals, that can, you know, that can affect it over time by in small amounts. And calcium, I think, is one of these what I'll call nasty um, supplements, along with iron. I mean, it seems to have changed days. I mean, I, I think that most people do not and should not supplement with uh, calcium. It's true up until a certain point. I would say the average healthy person should not be taking lots of calcium. Calcium is a really abundant mineral in food. And so if you're eating a healthy diet, which is where you should be getting most of your minerals, not supplements, you know, that that's going to be sufficient in terms of, of calcium levels. If you have a little bit of dairy, even, you know, that will increase your calcium even that much more. A lot of dairy can sometimes be harmful because it throws off the balance of calcium and phosphorus. So with, you know, with calcium and, and making sure that when you look at your blood test, basically, and you're looking at your calcium level, if it's really, really low and you are someone that has osteoporosis um, or osteopenia, and you're wor worried about your bone health, you just broke a bone or just had a fracture, um, you're an athlete, you know, there's different groups of people that maybe would want to take a little bit of calcium here and there. But it's generally, you know, just taking a ton of calcium and nothing else and not making any changes to your diet is not generally a good idea. There are many people claiming that an acidic body uh, is more of a breeding ground for a disease like certain cancers. So do you agree uh, it's better to uh, swing towards a more alkaline body? Or is this just hearsay? You know, I think it needs to be balanced. The thing with pH and the reason why it's important is that, you know, it's one piece, it's, it's one piece of, you know, a huge, um, of so many different factors that contribute to health. So it's only one piece, I wouldn't say it's, it's a, a huge predictor. Um, but 
in general, people who have a more balanced pH and are not extremely acidic or seemingly extremely alkaline tend to have more optimal function and health. And the reason why is because enzymes, so enzymes are, um, enzyme in your body does work. It creates energy in your body. It does some kind of a function for your body, some kind of a, a work function. And if en- enzymes the way that they function optimally is at certain pHs in the body. And so if your body's pH is off, then your enzymes aren't going to work as optimally as they should, which means your body's not going to create energy as well as it should. It's not going to do work as well as it should. So there, you know, I think when you're looking at it from a larger perspective, it's pH affects the way that your body's biological processes happen. Um, and there's many things that affect that, not just pH of your body, but there's many, many things, including what you eat and your stress level and how you sleep and how much sunshine you get and how you breathe. And a lot of those things affect all of this. It's like very multifactorial, but definitely, you know, having a, a good, healthy pH and not being too acidic or too alkaline generally comes down to what you eat, how you sleep how stressed you are, um, and kind of the nutrient makeup of what you're eating. So if you're eating lots and lots of sugar, that in general makes you more acidic. If you're, um, you know, eating uh, lots of leafy greens and colorful food, that helps to give you lots of uh, minerals, and that helps to balance what balance your pH. So it, it just, you know, it's a very multifactorial, but it's an important piece. So do you think most people should supplement with potassium and possibly bicarbonate? Most people, no, but definitely there are a group of people that that benefit from that for sure. Um, I'm really not a, I'm not someone that likes everyone to be on a multivitamin, for example. I really like to make those decisions individually based on the person and they change over time. So what one person might need, maybe they need some potassium that month, the next month, or, you know, the next three months or six months down the line, they might not need it anymore. And so I think if for for the most part, if you're using supplements appropriately, you shouldn't need them forever. There's some exceptions, there's some exceptions, because people have, you know, certain chronic disease, or they're on a medication that depletes that mineral or vitamin. So there are definitely exceptions, but for the average healthy person, just taking a multivitamin, I would say oftentimes is not necessary. It's better to kind of look at what you need at that time and make your um, diet adjust to what is needed, or if a little bit extra is needed to kind of help move things forward a little quicker, then supplements come into play then. When it comes to magnesium, I've persistently had low magnesium, and I mean significantly low um, years ago. Now it's the magnesium RBC shows low, mm-hmm. and I can take a gram and a half per day divided into, say, five do- uh, four doses, uh, and I can mix the bindings all day long and put on transdermal uh, magnesium, mm-hmm. and my magnesium rbc the intracellular it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't raise Hmm. you 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 got any thoughts on the inability there i'd be wondering if you're if there's a genetic reason for that i've definitely see some people that no matter what we do nutrient wise we're trying to get you know whether it's their magnesium or something like glutathione and we're trying to build those up and it just won't build no matter what we do 
Um, so in those instances, a lot of times genetic com- genetics come into play. It might also be that there's another nutrient that is needed to help the magnesium to get intracellular, for example, so that it can be detected when you do the RBC magnesium test. It could be that your needs for magnesium, for whatever reason, are just my, more, you know, much higher than the average person. And so the dosages that you need are also much higher than the average person. It's kind of, you know, it's a matter of doing that and a lot of experimenting, like it sounds you've done with different forms and types and dosages um, and, you know, routes like transdermal and that kind of thing. So that, yeah, it's, it's tricky, but I think possibly could be indicating there's some genetics there and there's just some more experimenting that might be helpful or possibly another nutrient that would be helpful to when paired with magnesium to help it be integrated into the cell. I see the time we have. I've just got a a couple more directions to look at. I actually have a lot more questions, but I see we simply don't have time. So I'll need to begin wrapping things up. When it comes to blood sugar, Mm -hmm. I used to have a low blood, fast blood sugar. Um, I can I can take out exact values actually. So I to just say say low, but then I did a five day fast. This is going to sound a crazy story. I think I did a five day fast. At the end of the five day fast, my fasting blood sugar was much higher every morning thereafter that five day fast. Mm-hmm. I assumed it would go away, and month after month it didn't. It persisted. I left over a year thinking it'll go back down. And then one night I got drunk. Uh, first time in, in, in over a year, I drank nine glasses of red wine. And when I woke up, it was back down again. Hmm. Then it stayed down for a few months, slowly began to rise. Then I did another five-day fast. And at the end of that five-day fast, the fasting blood sugar was even higher than ever. And it was 6.3, which is 113. And I was alarmed. Now it gets even crazier. So then I'm like, I was cooking uh, lunch to break the five-day fast. And when I saw 6.3, I thought, oh, my God. And I I went running instead. And when I came back and measured, it was still 6.3. And it didn't matter what I eating nor exercising. The fasting blood sugar was stuck at 6.3. That's 113. And I even decided the meter must be broken. Like, it's impossible. And I got an identical meter, and it was 6.3. And that persisted for a while. And I came across, like, physiological insulin resistance, like the muscles adapt. But I can't understand why the sugar would remain high and even exercise or even food didn't alter it. Like, that just seemed – and after that, I sort of gave up on sugars because I just understood I didn't understand enough. And maybe people don't understand enough. Because, for example, with often people will check your blood – fasting blood sugar, but it could be low. But that could mean you're in late stage um, diabetes when it goes low. You know, it rises and then it will – uh, it'll invert with the insulin. It'll crash back down again. It could mean you're in late late stage. A low fasting blood sugar doesn't mean you're you don't have insulin resistance. Right. So yeah, that's you know it's a really interesting pattern. And following fasting glucose can take you on a wild ride. I've, I've gone definitely um, people that do continuous glucose monitoring. I've worked with a lot of clients who are using that, and so looking at things very closely and what's happening to glucose. And I think. What's happening in that situation, um, you need to inform 
the what's happening there with a few other tests, for example, looking at your insulin levels and your hemoglobin A1C and your triglycerides. Because when you're when you're fasting, a lot of times glucose will go up after a, a fast during a fast and after a fast because your insulin levels go down. And so there's like this this temporary change that happens in your body as you need less insulin, as your cells become more insulin sensitive, your glucose actually goes up for a period of time, which makes it look like things are worse, but actually it's a sign that there's some insulin resistance and your body's repairing, um, or it's just a function of, you know, doing a fast. And so it really, when you're, when you're trying to make sense of fasting glucose and it doesn't make sense, it usually means you need a little bit more information and the key markers that I look at are fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, triglycerides, fasting insulin. I calculate a, a, um, the HOMA IR score, which is like an insulin resistance score from some of the tests that I just mentioned. And occasionally I'll look at IGF-1. So there are this group of tests that I think when you have more data points, it kind of more accurately gives you an idea of what's happening. Is it that your body's just becoming more sensitive to insulin and that's throwing off your glucose for a period of time? Um, if it's, you know, staying elevated for a long time, like it sounds like it did for you, there may have been some insulin sensitivity issues that needed to work themselves out. And so the fact that it was high may not have been a bad thing, even though it looked like it was, or the fact that it was low may not have been a bad thing. The other thing with glucose is things like melatonin can influence glucose. And I notice a lot of people who don't sleep very well, who don't have good sound sleep cycles, who maybe don't produce enough melatonin. As you get older, you also tend to produce less and less melatonin. That can affect glucose in, you know, in different ways. And so some people will will just show up to have a high fasting glucose all the time, but all their other blood sugar markers look normal. Sometimes that can indicate a sleep issue, actually, and a need for more melatonin. So it's really, you know, there's a lot of different things that I'm that are coming to mind, as you're kind of describing that scenario. But I think the most helpful thing in that situation would be to, you know, make sure you're looking, looking at the optimal values of, of, you know, fasting glucose and insulin and hemoglobin A1C and triglycerides, and then looking at all of those together to get a more accurate picture of what's going on. That was a conclusion I came to that would let me just forget about it not being some kind of panic. So triglycerides, mm-hmm. ultra low, IGF-1 in the optimal uh, sweet spot. Uh, HbA1c 5.5, not as low as I would. I would like it more 4.95-ish, mm-hmm. but okay, 5.5. It never goes above that. I can bring it down by exercising more, mm-hmm. but uh, without pushing it and being quote somewhat lazy, it, it sits at 5.5, which you know is an ideal, but it's it's not alarming me. Mm-hmm. And with the testing, I used to freak out a lot with numbers. And I used to make my life miserable years ago. And nowadays, I I can laugh at values which are way off because I go with how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And most yeah. of the time, I'm feeling uh, absolutely well. I've only got um, two more questions for you. What are you doing in the face of COVID-19? Or is there testing you're doing? Is there immune uh, function tests that you can do? It, because people do want to check, you know, am I in a in a peak state, um, in a in a uh, coping with COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because uh, a significant portion of the population will get over the next two years. Mm-hmm. And also, um, are you taking any supplements or changing routines at all in the face of uh, COVID nineteen? 
So in terms of, you know, specific um, tests, blood tests, I would say the only thing that I'm really pushing people to make sure that they've done is, is their vitamin D level. You want to optimally have it around 50. So between 50 and 70 seems to be, there's been a lot of research recently that have come out that, that supports the role of vitamin D in um, making it so that people who do get COVID-19 don't have as severe of um, severe of reactions and complications. And so definitely, I think that is, you know, there's only so much research can only move so fast. And because this is, you know, newer, I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see if there's anything else science based that research will tell us we should really be testing. So far, that only thing, the only thing that I'm really kind of lobbed onto, and I'm trying to make sure all of my regular clients have really good optimal vitamin D levels that they're getting regular sun exposure. Um, if they have other additional risk factors that they're taking vitamin D. And then the other test that I would say there isn't research to support, but that I just from knowing um, kind of how the flu seasons go and other viral illnesses, I think it's also important to make sure that your inflammation markers are um, at low levels. So things like HSCRP and you know, really HSCRP, I would think the, the high sensitivity CRP um, and homocysteine, fibrinogen, those are basics. But if you just did one, the high sensitivity CRP would be good. And you want to see that under 0.5 milligrams per liter um, optimally. Under one is pretty good, but, but really optimally what research shows is that under 0.5 um, is even is kind of the best level to have. Um, so those are the two tests in terms of supplements and things that I'm doing. Vitamin D, vitamin C, elderberry. Uh, elderberry, it, there's not a lot of research with this particular, you know, SARS-CoV-2. And so we need to be careful about making recommendations for the specific treatment of that. What I'm telling people is we don't really know in terms of supplements at this point other than vitamin D um, reducing complications. And so I think it's really important to do things that are in support of your immune system in general that you would do for any other viral illness. And for me, what those are, are taking a little extra vitamin D, especially because mine tends to be on the low side, um, taking vitamin C, which helps to reduce the, the um, severity and longevity of, or not longevity, but the um, length of how long you're, you're sick when you do get a viral illness. And then again, we don't know if that will happen with SARS-CoV-2, but there's been some treatment with IV vitamin C, some high dose vitamin C that has been shown to um, be helpful in the hospital setting. So I think it is a good idea to take at least a gram of vitamin C a day. Um, elderberry helps to reduce viral load and research of other viral studies. So I do that. NAC is something that an acetylcysteine helps to reduce mucus and thin mucus in the lungs. And because SARS-CoV-2 SARS really targets lung tissue and, you know, if, basically making sure that your lung tissue is healthy as possible. And so that's something um, also that I think is a worthwhile supplement. And then things like propolis and honey, throat sprays and um, to the back of the throat where the viral replication occurs for this particular virus, I think is a smart idea. And then the, the really the main things that I think are even more important than supplements are making sure you're getting adequate sleep, because if you don't, then that lowers your ability to, or basically makes you more susceptible to getting a virus, making sure you're getting adequate sun and your vitamin D level is optimal, making sure that you're exercising and really 
you know, regulating or not regulating, but, um, you know, really stressing at a, a, a low level of, of good stress to your lung function and, you know, increasing your breathing rate and your heart rate. Um, and then the last thing that I really like to have people do is end their shower in cold. So do a cold spray to the front and back of the body. That little bit of a stress, those little good stresses like exercise and cold showers, they help to build up your resilience when bigger stresses come around. So I like to have people do that. It really helps with breathing and lung function, um, as well as doing things like meditation and breathing exercises, which are also found to be really important with this particular um, virus. If you do get it, breathing exercises can be really life-saving in this situation. So um, that's kind of the... Yeah, like stuff. Wim Hof style breathing. Exactly. Yep. Very, very much so. Yeah, I... I, I agree with you there. I also started taking uh, olive leaf extract, uh, mm -hmm. lysine, uh, quercetin. Yep. And on the HSCRP side, it, I was 0 0.5 or 0 0.4 actually. And by taking a liposomal uh, curcumin C3, uh, it dropped by 0 0.1. So, you know, then it was 0 0.3. Mm -hmm. It's not... You know, I don't think it's critical. And I should have mentioned in Hummer IR, I was fine calculation, but I was still paranoid. So I did a two-hour version of the craft assay, and it indicated no insulin resistance, just dysregulated fasting blood glucose. So then I relaxed and stopped measuring uh, <laughs> sugars. <laughs> yep. And so where can people find out more about you? Um, my website is a good place, dralexisshields.com. I have a Facebook page under Dr. Alexis Shields. I wish we had time to cover liver enzymes, kidney function, etc. Maybe we'll have um, to do another one. <laughs> exactly. So I feel this was only a cursory quick chat. And I see uh, we, I've got another call and so do you. So we'll need to dash. I greatly appreciate you taking the time out and uh, letting us know what you do with your virtual uh, functional medicine uh, consultations. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.